Hello and welcome to the Humanizing Growth podcast series brought to you by the Institute for Real Growth. Each week, IRG founders Frank von den Driest and Mark de Swan-Arons will be talking to global leaders and practitioners to discuss what it takes to drive human-centric growth. For more information, visit www.instituteforrealgrowth.com. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Welcome to the Humanizing Growth web series by the Institute for Real Growth. Uh, I'm Mark de Swan-Arons. I'm going to be one of two hosts today. With us, we have a very special guest, uh, Deborah Koyama. Nice to meet you. Deborah, where are you? And how are Hi. you? Hi, Mark. Well, first, thank you for the invite. It's a pleasure to be here today. I'm in London. I moved to London five months ago to start a new chapter of my career, my life. And I feel very lucky that I was able to move to my new apartment one month before the lockdown. <laughs> What's uh, special, and we'll talk a little bit about personal journey, but not to glorify you. And I want to say that right up front, you were quite resistant making the conversation about you, but much more in the theme of a leadership journey, a personal journey, which of course is always very strongly connected to the leadership journey. I think it says everything about you that you wanted that to be the main conversation, not you personally. In, in, in many ways, we've tried in these webinars to talk about journeys so that other growth leaders, other CMOs, other growth officers could pick and choose relevant lessons that they actually might apply in their own journey. Tell me a little bit, I mean, oh, sorry, I forgot to say that, uh, of course, you're now the chief growth operating officer at Unilever, a new role, a very exciting role, uh, but also quite recent. So let's talk about the journey. Where does your journey start? Well, let me start telling that my family heritage is Japanese, hence my last name. But I was born and grew up in Sao Paulo, Brazil. Therefore, my accent, for those of you who know the, a little bit of the Brazilian accent, with an American influence, my grandparents migrated to Brazil in the beginning of last century. Started my career there in Sao Paulo, Brazil. I did uh, marketing, operate, operational marketing, if you were marketing in a country, for eight years. I had great foundational companies, I must say, quite privileged, Diageo and Kraft. During all that time, almost eight years, I really wanted to, I always had this desire to have a, an international career, become a global citizen, so I decided to pursue an MBA abroad. 20 years ago, I decided to move to the U.S. And that was such a pivotal moment of my life, Mark, I must say. Uh, what seemed quite impossible when I learned about an MBA in the first place, I think I was below 20. And then even on my 25th birthday, I remember I went to see a consultant who would help people to prepare to apply to an MBA, to a top MBA abroad. And he told me flat out, it was my birthday. And he said, you yeah. will never be able to get to a top MBA because of your background. It was a very first meeting. Uh, <laughs> short and first meeting. Uh, I left crying in the office, but a couple of years later, I was going to Kellogg in, in, in the U.S. Incredible. Another point, I was a little bit older, so I was about to, to turn 30, and uh, I had a great job at Kraft. I had a long-term relationship. I had some savings. I could easily settle and my president at the time at Kraft, he told me, I think you're a little bit old to get an MBA. I think you should stay in Brazil. I can eventually expatriate you later. 
And I got very torn, I must say, but I decided to travel to a beautiful island in Brazil to think about by myself about that life decision. And deep inside of me, I thought I really want to get uh, an MBA to be the gateway for uh, an international career and become a global citizen. So I jumped, quit my job, I left my relationship, I got all the oh. savings that I had in the bank. Oh, oh I see. I got my <laughs> MBA, which was barely half of the MBA. So I had to get a scholarship and leave me for that. Just follow my heart. The MBA was a pivotal moment of my life. One of the few I have, I think I had two pivotal moments of my life. And definitely the MBA was the first one which allowed me to go to the US and start my, my journey and my adventure globally. I take from that the lesson learned that if, if, if people are telling you one thing, but you follow your heart is clearly a, a big lesson there. Are, are there moments though that actually there were people really mentoring and guiding you that there were lessons? So how did you filter which lessons and advice to follow and which not? Yeah, so I think, as I said, it was very torn and very wise. Senior people were telling me, maybe you should not go. You're too old for this. You should build a career and then be expatriated eventually. But I still decided to follow my heart. I think from that phase, um, I remember when I was exploring how to eventually move abroad and build this international career, I was very young. I was 24, 25. I didn't have much money. And I went to a conference uh, organized by, a, by the Japanese Association in Sao Paulo, Brazil, with executives who had spent some time in Japan. And I went to that panel in the end. I went to talk to one of the speakers and I was telling him, like, listen, I'm, I don't have money. I'm, I have this dream of moving abroad and I'm, I'm, I'm going to just go. I'm going to go either to Japan or to the U.S., and see what happens without much of a complete plan. My brother had just done something similar. He followed up an entrepreneurial career. And this executive told me quite uh, emphatically in that very short conversation and said, no, don't do that. Uh, I think you should build a career. And uh, it was such an impactful conversation, Mark and Frank, from a 15 minute conversation with a leader who literally probably changed my life. You know, I was about to just potentially go and, and, and without a plan to, to the US or to Japan. So I think for us as leaders, I love mentoring. And I think we don't realize at times what an impact we can have in people's careers and, and lives. So I'm sure that all of us here like to, to pass on lessons and, and insights to young talent. It, it's really interesting. We had the prep talk, uh, obviously, and Mark, thanks for stepping in. Uh, and I don't know if you mentioned it about your, your study as a, for an architect. And, uh, and, and it's really interesting, the whole architect, there's, a, there's obviously a whole brainness to this. You need to be creative and analytical. You need to be, but, but it's also about being rational and emotional, listening to your head and to your heart. I heard in your first stage, it was a lot about following your heart, but it's obviously always a balance, right? Between following what you really feel you want to do. And at the other hand, you know, also being rational, maybe not react to your gut instinct and feel, but just do the wise thing. How, how has that equation worked for you? How's that balance worked for you? I always do a lot of exploration and analysis, all the different options. Uh, I think at times 
I can leave a little bit with the choice paradox. I must say that I, I don't know exactly what to do because there's so many roads to travel or choices, but in the end, after you have all the information, the best data that you can possibly have, right? That's what we say. In the end, I, I believe that you have to follow your heart. Hey, and so did you already mention the, uh, the work you did at L'Oreal? Have you, have you touched upon that yet? No. So tell me about it and tell the viewers my about journey. it. So, yes. So after I, I left and I, I got the MBA in the US, my, my master plan talking about architecture was to stay uh, abroad, right? And to build this international career. So I end up uh, going back to craft after my MBA to work for that specific president who said, maybe you should stay, but well, obviously we stay connected. He hired me back in New York. And I did six years of regional marketing for Latin, for, for Latin America. So in the end, I did 10 years with Kraft. And, and there was a point that I said, I really want to enter in the U.S. market. And that's why I was really trying to have an MBA to open new markets, new experiences, right? And I assessed a couple of opportunities with Kraft. But after 10, 10 years in food and beverage, I said, maybe I want to do something a little bit more creative matching business because of my architecture side in terms of aesthetics and creativity. And I thought about beauty. And it was a similar story. I had moved three times in the US from Chicago to New York. I was in Miami back then. And then I said, uh, I think I really want to try beauty. Therefore, I want to go back to New York City. I want to enter in the US market. And then that's what I would love to do. And people said the same thing. They told me, wait, you're Brazilian, you have Latin America experience, you've been food and beverage for 10 years, you're saying that you wanna go back to New York, work for a totally different industry, beauty, has nothing to do with food and beverage. You'll never make it, and by the way, you were Brazilian and, and true, I didn't have a green card back then. But fair enough, a couple of years later, it takes time, I, I end up in New York City, working for L'Oreal for six years in the US market, so a little bit of a repetition in my life, but uh, it's talking about the lesson of the first uh, phase, right? Of following your heart and like looking at the different options. But I think what I want to highlight from the L'Oreal time and that links to the, the big conversation that we have had at the RIG program is that I launched my first sustainability platform with Garnier. So I was leading Garnier Hair Care and I launched the first sustainable platform of my career, probably one of the first ones for L'Oreal with TerraCycle, which is a company that helps to recycle packaging to eliminate waste, which is a massive global issue. And it was a leading industry proposition. We were saying, we incentivize you consumer to send back the packagings of Garnier or L'Oreal brands or any competitive brands. Uh, and we're gonna really like bring the industry together to address this global issue. And I think that was the moment, this is 10 years ago, when I realized that we marketers have a massive opportunity as, as brands, as company, as leaders to have an impact in issues like waste or water, global issues. And I became quite passionate about it. And, and you're going to see, as we talk about the different phases, I became this champion and a believer in sustainability, social impact and purpose since. So I'm picturing this, this girl, young woman, highly ambitious, Japanese parents, born in Brazil, moving to the US, no green card, gave up her 
of her relationship and, and, and really jumped into the deep and with a mindset of, you know, I can make the, the impossible possible. But I also see you as, as, in a way, as an outsider because you're in an industry that's new to you, a country that's new to you, with colleagues that are, are new to you, and you're driving new initiatives. And I think that's something that is really inspiring, actually, also for our viewers and definitely the people that are you, your age, the, the age you were then, 30-something. What was the fuel? Because that's, that's tough, that's hard. You, you know, you take on a lot and you're almost like, in a way, on your own with all these, as I said, new industry, new country, new colleagues, and, that's, and still you're pushing a change agenda. That's, that's, that's not nothing, I mean, clearly. What is the fuel? What is it, what, what gave you the push? What can others that listen to you now learn from that? Yeah, I think um, the leaders in the call will also recognize you just, you just find something that you really believe in and you become a champion of that platform, that cause, right? And that was a little bit how I started at L'Oreal. So we had this TerraCycle partnership concept in the organization, and I met the, the founder of it, and, and I became quite um, passionate and aware of the, the massive issue that we had against waste globally. So you put together a plan, you bring allies, right? You have to mobilize at least a few people who believe that that's a worth cause that's gonna drive uh, the business as well. That's a critical piece. You get sponsorship of a leader, also a super important step. You start small. Uh, I started with a PR campaign. Uh, again, it was a line extension of the portfolio that I was managing. We did start quite genuine. We started Times Square, New York City, with the founder of the organization, we brought Philippe Cousteau, we brought a couple of celebrities that are truly environmentally aware, and we launched it. But we had no idea that it would become a multi-brand, multi-year, and eventually global platform for L'Oreal. So it, I think the one of the key secrets, if you will, you start small with allies, build an alliance, and getting the sponsorship. And... In the end, looking back, that's what I did at ABI and that's what I did at Mondelez very recently as well. Okay. But there's, there's two things that, that I want to dive into. One is, what was the moment that you defined for yourself that you said, this is worth me fighting for? I think it was the bigger cause, a much bigger issue outside of myself, outside of my brand, outside of L'Oreal. But and was it like a realization that all of a sudden yeah, you start a calling, if you will? Is that it? Exactly. Yeah, no, so, so if you want to go back way uh, from the start of my life, I think we, we talked a little bit um, when we were um, talking about this talk. When I was very, very young, again, thinking about my career, and again, I have all these master's plans, this roadmap since I'm very young. And I said, I think what I'm going to do is have a corporate career, have a family, have a comfortable life. And after that, I would love to eventually work for the UN or for a nonprofit. And that sounded a very unachievable dream way back when uh, as a young lady in, in, in Sao Paulo. But what I realized, and I think we spoke a lot as well, 
at IRG is that, and, and most recently, I, I feel really leaving my purpose is that we as marketers, we as leaders, we as growth leaders can truly have an impact from within because working with an ecosystem of nonprofits as I did at ABI or partners, you can truly have potentially even a, a bigger impact because you have okay, the so, so very young you decided United Nation nonprofit, I want to you know change and, and make the world a better place. And then actually in your career, all of you found out more or less by accident that actually you know what in this role as marketer, I might be even be able to make a bigger impact. I think that's a really good lesson. It's great because you've done it many times over. We'll talk more about that. But it's really great and I think motivating for, for all our viewers also. It dawned on you that actually as a marketeer, we might be in the best place, yes. even more than in non-for-profits non and, and who knows the United Nations. I really like that. There's one other thing though that I wanna, want to, to hear you talk more about. The business case for whether it's sustainability or other, let's say, more purposeful, meaning more value creation for all stakeholders, as we call it in IRG, for your colleagues, for your customers, but also the communities that you operate in. I mean, you went after L'Oreal to ABI, pretty known for the fact that they're very performance, very results driven, and results is also financial results. So how did you convince your bosses at ABI or the key decision makers to throw a lot of money behind this? You told me about a platform you created together with Matt Damon, right? For uh, making water accessible to, to women in Africa. That, uh, you know, in developing water, yes. Very clearly, super motivating cause. And yes. then you're looking at uh, headquarters ABI in New York. And you're telling me, you know what? This is the best way to spend your dollars and, and give me some more. How did you do that? What was the formula? Yeah, yeah so I must say there was a desire to have a, a, a platform for the global brands of ABI to make the world a better place. So there was already like this discussion, what can we do for Salatois that I was leading? And, and around water. So that's when I joined the organization. So the first question that I had is like, how is this linking to the brand in the first place? So they can impact the business after all. That's what we also uh, should be looking at. And obviously water is like the majority of, the, of what a beer is, is made of. Um, then we're deciding on the partners and we look at all different nonprofit um, a set of many nonprofit organizations and we end up with Matt Damon's, not only because of him being a, a big name that can really help to build awareness, but his co-founder is a very long-term uh, expert in terms of the water issue around the world. So it was a very legitimate uh, and, and, a, and, a, and a mechanic that we really believe in in terms of providing access to women in developing world or water um, in developing world. And, um, and we did research, right? We were trying to understand the concepts. And, uh, and as we were learning about the concept and testing all the assets, we start seeing that it would not only drive uh, brand love, if you will, but also 
purchase intent. It was starting to show that it would drive sales and have an impact in the business. So with that, we obviously got endorsement. We started small. It was the same thing. We started Sundance Film Festival yeah. and uh, with a PR digital platform. But as we start to learn and iterate, end up going to the Super Bowl, you got renewing the World Economic Forum. So that's when, Frank, I truly saw with my own eyes that purpose can drive growth. And my guess is that if the audience want to learn one thing uh, in general, but specifically from this call, is, uh, is wow. A lot of us have, have asked us also, give me more data why this is in the long run actually also boost our financial results. And, and your answer has been do deep research, uh, get the data in place and, and, and make the business case. And, and I know ABI a little bit, um, and I know you better have a strong case. It, it needs to be a solid and robust case, mate, and, and you managed to do that. Is that something that you repeated later on in other jobs and in a situation? Has that become a fixed part of your formula? Yes, yes. I think when, when it, it, it is relevant, yes. But for example, I also launched a pilot at Mondelez, uh, on a circular economy platform called Loop. I think yeah. people will know that platform, which was launched last year in the, in the World Economic Forum as well. And um, we didn't, I mean, it was, we were trying to build the business case, but because it's such a new to the world platform, it was a bit hard to say, this is what we truly believe this is gonna be. Uh, obviously we had a PNL and all, but it was not very, again, it was a, uh, unknown territory, but at the moment that you go, I'm going to do this is small, uh, this is going to be a pilot, and it's going to be a, a food in potential in the future, right? And designing what a circular economy uh, ecosystem could be between manufacturers, retailers, consumers. Um, I, I was able to got leadership sponsorship, and uh, I sponsored the team who did that very <coughs> in five months but yes you have to have a business case even though at times like we just did at Mondelez we didn't have exactly all the benchmarks because it was such a new platform to the world. So, so what's your recommendation then when it comes to to people that are you know at the beginning of the journey that, that you have followed for a long time when it comes to the business case of, uh, of purposeful market and branding. When it comes to the financial results, is it just nice if you can prove it, but it wouldn't stop you from doing it as, as it didn't stop you at Mondelez? No, no, you have to have the business case, always. Uh, there's no question about that. I, I think my point was more like sometimes you, you have a business case, but you're not like you don't really have benchmark data or facts or research, which was the case for the, loop plat the circular economy platform, but you have to have the business case. Uh, otherwise, it's very hard for anyone like uh, any of us would be approving anything without a business case, right? But then at that point, you can usually, I would recommend you go small and you have a, a small win, show results, and then you scale up. So you went from L'Oreal to ABI, it's where you stayed for how long? I stayed for two years. For two years, and 
what would what was your big takeaway from from spending two years at that company? I think those would be my two lessons, um, Frank. That purpose can really drive growth. I became a, a champion, as you're gonna see when I went to Mondelez. That was my key flag, I must say. And uh, and I think what we just said, driving change. Uh, you need to start somewhere and likely small, but you can uh, make a big platform and eventually create a movement. Your story so far reads like, I mean, like, like a textbook example of, of a beautiful case that, uh, case that is, that is all breathing success and true grit and everything. I just hard, would have a hard time believing that you didn't run into brick walls every now and then, that you didn't make big mistakes or pitfalls that, that, that maybe afterwards could have been avoid, avoided. In our program, and you know that, we ask leaders to share stories of failure. And, and what really struck me was that everybody said, well, actually, it felt great to listen to. It increased respect and it felt great and liberating for the people. So I want to offer you that moment of liberation. <laughs> <laughs> No, but yes. seriously, I mean, I think there's there's a lot to learn from failure as well. So, so if there's pitfalls that that you would the viewers uh, want to avoid if possible, what would they be? Yes, so uh, I get this question a lot, uh, Frank, and I think uh, what I what I reflect and I realize is that whenever I feel and I believe that I made a mistake or I had a failure, I learn that those were moments that I was potentially lost judgment because I was off balance of my well-being. That's my big learning, uh, I must say. And as an example, as, as we were talking about ABI, I was working too much, close to exhaustion, and I decided to go on a sabbatical, which in the beginning it felt quite a failure. And which turned out to be one of the best things that I've ever done in my life as well. So that's the second pivotal moment of my life after the MBA that I say, those are the two big moments of my life that transformed uh, myself and, and my journey. But I think if I were to take away and summarize the moments that I felt that I made mistakes or had a failure were moments that I was, again, not taking care of my well-being. And that's what I tell to my mentees, to my peers, uh, as, as well-being is the foundation of your professional and personal success. I wish I had known this way younger, right? I had to learn the, the, the hard lesson, not young at all. No, I, I'm so with you. And, and Mark, my business partner who started the conversation, you know him well. Uh, when we designed the leadership program, it was just that we didn't have enough space with, with the COVID thing that happened and we had to go online. But actually taking care of your, your body and spirit, for that matter, is such an important leadership trait, especially in times of crisis. It sounds so obvious. I think that's a very important one. And the other one that you touch on is actually taking a break, stepping out of the mold, out of the treadmill. I've never heard anybody said, I really regret I took a sabbatical or I took a step or I did something entirely different. You know, whether it's, it's playing a, a musical instrument or, or dancing lessons, whatever it is, it, it just it enriches your perspective, right? 
Oh, I highly recommend, I must say. I think many people came out asking me afterwards about, and I, many people did take a sabbatical uh, that I know after I, I eventually connected with this person. I, I highly recommend. It was phenomenal, fantastic learning. Why aren't we doing this more? Why aren't big corporates <laughs> I know, big question. institutionalizing it? They get better people back, right? Agree. I became a much better, not only personal, but professional after my sabbatical. And, 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 and so is it that then also that you decided to, to go for the next move and come to Europe? Yes, so uh, I had this uh, newer dream, if you will, of, of living and moving to Europe. So when I came back from my sabbatical, I say, I really want to, to, to cross the ocean. I was in New York for 12 plus years. So a total of almost 20 years in the US. And uh, I took another leap. Uh, I went from New York City, which I consider my home uh, town, to Zurich, which was quite an adaptation. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I took the role to become the CMO for Mondelez uh, Europe. And I was excited about the agenda more than anything in terms of bringing marketing back to the center of the organization. Uh, especially in the 21st century, as we say, digitally. So I was quite passionate about uh, that specific change uh, to be uh, brought to the organization. So it's interesting. I got a question from uh, a woman I, I much admire, and she's a former colleague, actually, and she used to run the purpose practice, uh, or she actually took it over for me at some stage. Uh, she's called Mariana Peneva. And, uh, and she asks, and I would like to link it to your move to, the, to, to basically the third continent, to Europe. What's your personal purpose? Have you like, like really articulated a purpose for yourself? And, and, and is the move to Europe in any way related to that purpose? So it's two questions. Great question. Uh, yes, because I'm gonna touch on my personal um, purpose, which is linked to my professional life and i can even give a hint of my personal life my private life right i really want to i'm going to be very open with this audience now i really wanted to move to europe because um i was single i'm still single and uh for some reason my relationships were all european uh, men so i said listen i think i just i should just move to the continent that's number one Number two, uh, I think the opportunity to be a CMO at Mondelez with that agenda of putting consumers back at the center and driving change is something that I'm very passionate about, especially because in that journey, and, and, and I can expand uh, later on, um, I thought that I was living my purpose, right? My purpose is, I. I did a workshop to articulate it, but it is to inspire people to achieve their full potential, um, to ultimately impact the world, because I believe everybody has a gift to give back to the world. And it was like a question that I wrestled through my entire life, is how I'm gonna give back to the world, giving all the privileges and all the gifts that I was giving. Um, so, and Mondelez, and uh, that's what I was able, I hope, uh, to do, right? I, I went on a road show with 500 marketers, bringing them together for the first time, talking about consumers in the digital age. 
and I put purpose at the center of that roadshow. And on stage, I would say across the three leading four hubs, if I can inspire you marketers, right, to be the best that you can possibly be as marketers, uh, and ultimately putting purpose at the center and impacting the world, I think I'll be living my own purpose. So anyway, a very long uh, answer, but it is a bit the crossover was a little bit on the personal side uh, and also helping me to live my own purpose, which is to inspire uh, back then 500 marketers to be at best, uh, putting purpose at the center of marketing and brands to ultimately impact the world. Great, thank you very much for that and, and, and for being so open. I want to touch on a topic that we decided is maybe too much to add to this conversation, but I still want to do it, actually. It's a topic of diversity. And, and, and we said, well, implicit, basically, you're the embodiment of diversity with such a rich cultural or diverse background and experiences, etc. And I said that I could relate, to, and that's a different story, but to being an outsider, because it's all great, you know, that we're pushing, and I think obviously it's very good that we're pushing uh, agendas of diversity, especially at decision-making tables. On the other hand, I also wonder how it felt for you, because maybe you bring diversity to many decision-making tables, but you're also in many respects an outsider, or possibly could feel like an outsider. Is that how you ever felt it? And is there any, any wisdom that you want to share for other people that step, you know, on a, on a decision-making table with, well, let's, let's call it, uh, you know, uh, what is it, male, pale, and stale, <laughs> uh, with, with a non-diverse uh, leadership team, and you enter that room. How was that? How does that feel for you? And, and, and is there lessons that you want to share with others? Yes, I always felt that I didn't belong where I was in a way because I mean, I was a Japanese uh, growing up in Brazil and then you, I'm in the US, so I'm Japanese Brazilian. Then, then now I'm here in Europe or even the UK, you have this American accent, <laughs> but yeah. it's really America, so you have Japanese, you, have, you look like Asian, etc. So, having said that, um, I always feel at the same time that I, I, I'm part of wherever I am, you know, I'm thinking about companies now. I just believe that I have the same voice that other people have. Uh, and I think as a marketer, we have to champion diversity because the world is diverse, right? But I think from a personal standpoint, I, I have been a champion of women, of course, of diversity because I am, as you said, uh, maybe a little bit of a sample of diversity in myself. That's it. I'm a massive champion of diversity, obviously. Then you made your most recent move from Mondelez, where you could really work and follow what you wanted to work on, your purpose. But then you made this move to Unilever. And, uh, and I have a question from... Um, well, a partner of the IRG and a man I deeply, deeply respect. He's a leading partner at Exitor, the um, leadership development and, and coaching uh, firm. And Dave Black Blackshaw asks you, hey, De Deborah, how is your move to Unilever, because that's where you went, an example of following your heart? 
Well, I'll be, uh, as I'm so open, I guess, in this hour, Frank, the, the truth is that I, I wanted to be in London when I set myself to come, to come over to this continent. And I was talking to Unibiver <laughs> because uh, obviously it is a purpose-led company since its origin. It is the lighthouse, I think, in the private sector in terms of multi-stakeholder model and sustainable growth. And, uh, and then I got, it, it was Brexit, so I stalled the conversation, and then I got this offer to be the CMO of Mondelez, uh, which obviously is a fantastic challenge and role. But in the end, and a little bit serendipity, I got reconnected to Unilever, and uh, I am full circle about our conversation, right? I am in the, in the end where I wanted to be in the first place, which yeah. is based London working for Unilever, which again, it is this company that I hope that I can help to continue to prove to, to the world, to the system, to the industry that uh, purpose can drive growth. Hey, yeah, so it's, it's very much related to your move to Unilever. It's, it's, it's slightly, it's somewhat related to the topic throughout this conversation. But I was fascinated by your title that you got at, uh, at Unilever. I don't know if you made it up yourself or asked for the title or somebody told you this is going to be your title. But it's Chief Growth Operations or Operations <laughs> Growth, something like that, right? Yeah, it's Global Growth Operations Officer. Global Growth Operations Officer. So, so tell me what that means and, and tell me if you believe that's, that's, that's the title that, that fits what you're doing. It's a good title. Yes. Uh, well, I am shaping my agenda right now as we speak, to be very honest, right? Uh, as I said, I joined and COVID came. So I've been in a couple of um, agile squads, as we call, defining the strategy. Privilege should be on a squad defining what are the arc of the strategies going forward, um, as well as a couple of other uh, hot topics as we spun off of this master uh, strategic squad. Um, and uh, in the end, it is about accelerating top line growth, right? So for me, it's also, I think the opportunity is to link uh, the markets to the, it's a, it's a quite uh, big organization with many groups. So how I can really unlock and connect all these different groups to deliver accelerate top line growth. Um, it's, it's really funny that you say that. So it's, it's a question that comes up in almost all these webinars. So it's interesting that you say, well, in the end, it's about delivering top line growth. At the Institute, what we believe is it's about value creation for all stakeholders. And as a result, there will be top line growth. Or is that a semantic uh, discussion as far as you. Oh, I think it's a semantic. I think as, as I said, Unilever is the uh, champion, pioneer, and again, uh, I believe the lighthouse uh, in the industry, in the private sector, almost about multi-stakeholder model, right? Um, but it, so one of the stakeholders is uh, the shareholders, right? So you want to make sure that we are also delivering on the business results yeah. on top of everything else that um, Unilever is doing for um, the broader ecosystem. 
So to me, it's always interesting when I study companies and the way they talk about growth is I often look at uh, just basically uh, annual reports is a good place. Town halls is another good place is how much, what percentage of the time that you spend talking about growth, do you spend talking about the numbers, financials, top line, bottom line? How much do you talk about impact on the community, societal growth, on customers, delighting your, your, your consumers and customers, and, uh, and your colleagues? So if you look at those four groups, when, when you have you know, an average day in the office or an average conversation with your team, you speak to them. How do you balance that? Is it, is it, you know, if you have those four, you look at talking about employees, talking about your consumers, talking about the communities and talking about your shareholders. How do you split a hundred percent of your time and, and, and energy that you bring to the table when you're working with your team? How do you divide the focus? Um, obviously, you have to talk about consumers, uh, customers, and in the way that you do business, you will be talking about employees, right? Because it's the how uh, to, to deliver uh, purpose-led sustainable growth. So you will be also talking and touching on uh, in, the, in the business results, which is the uh, one of the key um, drivers for the shareholders, right? So you have to talk about all of them, Frank. It's very hard for you to segment any conversation, right? Because you are talking about a, an ecosystem that's all interconnected. No, it is. And we know, I mean, I know we're in full agreement on that. However, the shift, and I'm not talking maybe per se about Unilever, I can't judge that, but... The shift that I've seen happening, especially due to COVID, I think if you took the average, let's say Fortune 5000, if you will, companies, that 80 to 90% of all the conversation was about consumers and about shareholders. Those were the two. I think COVID has dramatically shifted and upped the percentage that we're actually talking and focusing on colleagues and communities. Is that something you recognize as well? I 100%, yes. I think the first priority for Unilever during the COVID crisis was people. So is it, a, uh, is it a crisis thing or do you believe that something fundamentally has changed here? Well, because we're talking about a health crisis, right, Frank? So that becomes even more paramount in terms of looking after your employees and uh, your partners that are part of the system. So it is, it becomes the most critical um, I'm, going to have a, I'm going to do a difficult question. I'll say the company name and you give me one word that best describes that company. Let's start with Mondelez because... Oh, that's, a, that's an that. interesting game. Uh, <laughs> Frank. Mondelez, well, what's, the, what's, what's the one word that comes to your mind when you think about Mondelez? A flavor of living my purpose because of what I just said touching young talent and inspire people to go after their own purpose and, and, and also having brands with purpose. And, and, and if you would say, what's the big thing about ABI for you and your years at ABI? 
I think I would say um, quite a unique culture. I admire the leadership a lot, I must say, the CEO. Big learning, right? If, if, I, if we were going to go back to my story in terms of balancing uh, life, well-being. Yeah. And then, and then the first impression of unity. What's the one thing that comes to mind of your first impression, if you can call five? Well, obviously, very purposeful, led, centric. You can, you can see that's truly ingrained in the organization. It is uh, very human, very strong values, and i um, very excited to be there. What is, what is it that you feel that you bring, that you add, that they need it, that you represent? Well, Frank, I've been around for a long time, right? So I have 27 years of FMCG across these different companies. So obviously experience different perspective, a fresh point of view. I believe, and obviously this was part of the conversations I'm a massive, genuine champion and believer, purpose-driving growth. So I couldn't be more aligned with the, the mission and the vision of the organization. I, uh, to be honest, I would love to have this organization to continue to be the North Star in the private sector of sustainable growth. And I want to be part of that journey. We're almost at the end, uh, uh, This is obviously a topic that's, that's close to both our hearts, uh, and, and I know for many of the viewers uh, also. Just reflecting on that, how many years did you say? 27? 27. 27. <laughs> so, so I'll yeah, give you uh, a last chance to, to say what, in your view, if, if the viewers walk away and they think back about this conversation, what are the things that you really would like them to remember? Sure. So I think uh, I, I love Joseph Campbell, uh, the authority mythology. And I, I believe Campbell, in yeah. follow your bliss. That's what I say to the young people again. And I watched a documentary about him. And, and, and I love a quote that I heard that, that I wanted to share and read with, with the audience. So I'm going to just go ahead and read it. Yeah. Uh, it says, if you speak to somebody at the level of the mind, you speak to their minds. If you speak through your heart, you speak to their hearts. But if, if you speak through your life and your life is the story, then you will change lives. Anyway, that's something that really inspired me and resonated. And then I just wanted to share with I think, I mean, listen, I, I think you couldn't have better summarize what you brought also to this Humanized Growth Series. You spoke through your life experience and uh, I think that was super motivating to hear and it's, yeah, I mean, chapeau, kudos for, for, for doing this and many thanks for sharing that, for being so open and, and, and being a North Star, I think, for many younger but also more senior leaders. So, Deborah, I want to thank you very much. Bye-bye. See you. Bye.